Gethsemane, uh, as Jesus is instructing his disciples, um, just as he's about to be arrested and then taken to the cross. Uh, and so as we've been going through this, we've seen a, a number of different things that are, that are leading up to this, um, and much of it in opposition to Jesus Christ. Uh, we've seen the hatred of uh, the religious leaders who've been plotting to kill Jesus multiple times uh, over a healing, right? And, and so here's this guy who's been paralyzed from birth, who's laying on a bed. It's the Sabbath. Jesus walks by, says, pick up your cot and walk. He picks it up. And, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees at that time, go nuts and begin to look to plot to kill Jesus. We've seen these religious leaders uh, incite the crowd to do it before as well, where they've picked up stones uh, in order to throw them at Jesus. And, and Jesus is kind of um, hidden from them and actually like, walks out from their midst in that point. Uh, but there's all this opposition. There's uh, Judas being paid 30 pieces of silver. After he's arrested, uh, they begin to strike uh, Jesus and slap him like a stranger would walk up to him and slap him in the face and say, well, prophesy. Like, what's my name? You know, and they would do this over and over again. They uh, chose Barabbas over Jesus uh, when it came to an, an execution and then shouting, crucify him and asking for this terrible form of death. Like all of these things are, have led up to this moment, to the arrest that we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks. Uh, but again, it shows this, this hatred and this blindness towards Jesus Christ. Hatred because they don't know who he is. They don't know who he is because they're blind, but they're acting out of that blindness uh, in this opposition to him. Uh, and Jesus, knowing all of this, all of the things that have already happened, knowing what's about to happen uh, in the brutality of the arrest and his death, uh, is going to then prepare his disciples uh, for this in his, the section we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, which will be in John 15 and beginning in verse 18. So if you want to turn there, we'll also have the verses on the screen, uh, but let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, as we look at this moment in, um, well, in your conversation with the disciples on the night that you were betrayed, knowing everything that was about to happen to you, knowing everything that was in the hearts of men towards you, and knowing what would be towards us, uh, you chose to disciple your followers to teach and to lead and to guide to prepare and lord as we look at these words i pray that you would also prepare our hearts teach us and guide us as you did two thousand years ago we pray this in jesus name amen all right so in verse 18 uh, jesus is then saying to, again to his disciples if the world hates you understand that it hated me before it hated you if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But we, they will do all of these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for this sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would not have sinned. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled that they hated me for no reason. 
So the focus on our message today uh, is really going to be on the hatred towards Jesus uh, and then his declaration of that because he was hated, he was despised, he was persecuted, that those of us who follow him would also be hated, despised, uh, and persecuted. But before we get into that, there's an interesting statement to, to kind of consider here uh, just for a moment where, where he's saying, if I hadn't done these works, uh, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. And, and so the question that kind of pops up, if you're reading this at face value, is saying, like, well, if Jesus didn't come and Jesus didn't do the miracles, would people be sinless? Would they be without guilt? And, uh, and that's not what it's saying here. Because the aspect of original sin inherited from Adam and Eve, uh, it was the whole process of the, the need for sacrifice within the Old Testament. It was the whole premise for Jesus needing to come to the earth in order to die as a sacrifice, to, to pay for the sin of mankind, to offer a path to have that cleansed. So he's not saying here at this moment that, that if he had never done a miracle, people actually wouldn't have sin. But rather, what he's saying here is that there is a whole different facet of sin that was now committed because he had done these miracles. I like the way that D.A. Carson states it. He says that by coming and speaking to them and showing the miracles, Jesus incited the most central and controlling of sins, rejection of God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God, and a decisive preference for darkness rather than light. In other words, sin was already in the world. Mankind, men and women, already struggled with sin. And because of that, needed atonement. But, but at this point, when Jesus walks the earth, God himself is with them and doing these miracles in front of them and saying, I'm the way. Follow me. This is the path to redemption. This is the path to, to restoration. This is the path to forgiveness. And as he did these things, their response was continued rejection. It was this controlling sin that rejected God himself, continued in rebellion against him, and chose to rather be in darkness and bondage to law and sin instead of the freedom of grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In this commentary, uh, he then referenced a number of different situations where there was increased sin, such as Luke 10, where he talks about, you know, going to a town, and if they receive you, awesome. If they don't, shake the dust off their feet, off your feet, uh, because it's going to be better uh, for Sodom, Gomorrah, Tyre, and, and uh, Sidon than for the city that rejected the gospel. Uh, and so it's referring to that kind of thing and that their accountability and, and the gravity, rather, of their sin was really increased because God was right in front of them. And they had the opportunity to respond, but they continued to reject despite all of the different miracles and the teaching and everything that they had seen. Interestingly enough, most likely, it was his divine nature and his authority that actually incited the hatred. If you consider it, just, just the works themselves. You know, if, if Jesus went and healed a blind person, and it hadn't been the Sabbath, and he wasn't making the claims that he was making, do you think there would have been any complaints? Most likely not, right? Like, okay, cool, this happened. 
right? In fact, they were praying for types of things to happen uh, themselves. But because of his nature and his uh, authority and who he was and the statements that he was making to the truth of who he was, that's what actually incited the opposition. You go throughout the Old Testament and there was how many different prophets that would raise people from the dead that would heal people of leprosy. Very many of the same things that Jesus did. Uh, and some of them were rejected in their day because of the words that they had and, and calling to repentance. Um, but at the same time, they were recognized. Here Jesus is doing those things, and, and he's not recognized. You don't see in any instance the Pharisees sitting there and saying, well, you know what, maybe this guy really is a prophet. Maybe we really need to take what he's saying Seriously, But it was almost this instant rejection because they did not want to, to humble themselves. They didn't want to give up a sense of control or their sense of authority within their own lives or the ability to make their decisions and what they thought was the right religion. Um, but it was the authority and power of Christ in his identity that caused that rejection to take place. It was that divine nature. And in that, I think it's interesting because Jesus is saying within our passage this morning that if they rejected him, they will reject us. If, if they hated him, the world will hate us. And I looked into the original language within that passage and, okay, what is, what is hatred? Does it just mean like, I kind of dislike? No, it's, it's hatred in the way that we understand hatred. And so then I'm like, well, Why? Right? Why would the world hate us? Especially if our greatest desire uh, is to love people. The greatest command that Jesus gave to us, we looked at just last week, was, was love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The, the whole definition of love that we covered a number of weeks ago was like ultimate love is desiring the absolute best for the other person, which is in truth. It's not just an acceptance of whatever they want to do, but, but rather whatever is truly best for them for all eternity. The, that, that is our whole design. That is what God has, has died to redeem us to be, is light within the world. And so there's this whole aspect of our entire mission here on earth is to be salt, is to be light, is to reflect the love of God to the world around us. And our greatest desire is, is not for people to suffer, for people not to be lost, but, but for them to know truth. For, for them to see light, for them to, to know to Jesus, to, to be able to help for eternal life, like, like all we want is good. And yet, why is there hatred then? And then if we look at the reason why there's hatred towards Jesus and his divine nature and, and who he is, his identity, the, the authority that he had, that, that he would go and, and he would heal somebody, but the way that he did it in the truth of the reality that he himself created, it was what was so abrasive to the religious people of that time and, and their set standards, their set obligations, the way they felt things ought to go. It was abrasive to that, and because of that, they chose to reject Jesus Christ. 
Well, as we've been going through this and, and looking at how Jesus is saying, as we looked at last week, that the love that the Father has to Jesus is the love that Jesus has for us because of adoption, because of becoming his sons and daughters, because of being brought into to intimacy with him. We will we'll look at it more deeply in chapter 17, but, but Jesus is saying that, that he's praying that we would realize that Jesus and the Father and the Father is in Jesus and that we're in Jesus because Jesus and the Father and then the Father is in Jesus and, and then the Holy Spirit indwells us and there is this whole supernatural transformation that takes place at the point of salvation where we are so clearly no longer of this world. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. You must be born uh, of spirit and truth, of, of water and spirit. We're no longer simply human, but redeemed children of the God who spoke all things into existence with an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're called his ambassadors. We're called his children. We're called the lights. We're called to, to be his hands and feet, to be the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, as, as we go through our life and, and as we are truly saved and God is working within us, uh, there is an aspect of the deny, divine nature at work within us in all that we do. And so that even though we, we go and we have the best intention for whoever it is, we want to show love and, and love to that absolute fullest for their best good for all of eternity, there's this abrasiveness that some will feel because of God within us. Again, he's saying that they're going to reject us because they reject him. That they reject us because of him within us. And so we go through this, and as we go and we pray, and as we seek to help a world that is in darkness and needing Jesus and love and work within it, it will be the divine nature within us and, and truly the confrontation with God that people will find abrasive, that they will despise us. In other words, if we're the light and we're walking into a situation and we're doing it as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, we are carrying with us an encounter with the risen Christ. And we're saying, we're here to pray for you. We're here to help you. We're here to, to help you to see who Jesus is. And, and in doing it, it's the very same opportunity that the Pharisees had when Jesus walked the earth. Well, he's there and he's saying, here is the truth. You're blind in your rigid laws. Here's the truth that will set you free. Follow me. And they had a choice in that moment. And in that abrasiveness, they rejected it. And then also despised and hated him. As we walk in our life as Christians and what God has called us to do, we are bringing a confrontation with Jesus to people that we meet if we're faithfully walking in the way that God has called us to walk. And we're giving them that same moment of opportunity, that same moment of choice. Do I accept Jesus or not? And again, their response isn't on our shoulders. 
We're just called to be the light in that moment and to trust that God will work in whatever that situation is. But it's because of this confrontation, it's because of him living within us and, and shining out of us that this hatred will come. And Jesus continues on in uh, John 16 to kind of further what this looks. He says, uh, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. There's a time coming when anyone who kills you will think that he's offering service to God. It's the very story of Saul who became Paul, who would hunt down Christians and arrest them and bring them back, thinking that he was doing it in absolute faithfulness to God, but in absolute blindness he had this hatred towards Christians because he did not know Christ until he was fully revealed in that. And so in that lesson, even though there are going to be people who despise us, who find us abrasive because of our Christianity, the, the whole point is, is that we pray for their blindness to be lifted. I, I love some of the stories um, in the book Jesus Freaks that DC Talk put out a long time ago. Uh, but all these stories of like missionaries in different circumstances that are being persecuted, that are being oppressed, and, and as they were faithful and as they continued to shine out light in those moments, um, a number of those stories resulted in some of the oppressors finding Christ, being transformed. And I uh, encourage you to, to look at that book. It's a, a really good example of some of these things. But in God's wisdom, uh, even though he knows that this is what's going to happen, he still intends to send us out into the world for a purpose. Again, I look through this, and maybe it's weird, uh, but as I read through scriptures at times, I, I like to put myself in God's position. Um, and it sounds weird when I say that, but in reality, we do it all the time, Right? <laughs> Like, oh, I want this in my life. I don't want this in my life. I think this is okay. I don't think this is okay. And, and we make these decisions that we are controlling more of our life instead of really submitting it to God. But uh, I'd like to do this exercise of some things where he's sitting here and he's saying, they're going to ban you from the synagogues. Time's coming when anyone who kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And, and this is what you're going to face. And I'm leaving you here to face that. And I put myself into God's position within that moment, and, and I'm thinking, like, that's not the call that I would make in that case. Right? Like, like okay, like, like I've been here. The, the whole cross thing is happening. You're going to stay on earth in order to share this message. And, and what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to, to resurrect myself in the most public display possible. And then not only that, you're going to be like superheroes on earth. And, and anybody that you talk to and you share your faith with, like it's just going to be so obvious that this is reality and God exists. And you're not going to be persecuted because uh, I think it's going to be better if my sons and daughters are like super, super blessed and don't have any problems. And, and then everybody's going to want to be part of that because there's not going to be any problems. Like, like, that's the plan that I would come up with. Like, like, once you're saved, it's like the golden retirement from life. No more problems, no more illness, nothing. Everything is smooth sailing, and, and that just proves that, that heaven is real, that I'm real, and, and other people want to join this club. Like, 
that's honestly, I think anybody else would choose that plan, right? Like I'm just saying, in our own wisdom, that seems like a pretty good plan. But God in his wisdom does it this way. We're intentionally sent into the world for a purpose. John 17, beginning in verse 12. Again, this is when Jesus is praying. He says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, is talking about Judas, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. The word the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. This is very intentional words by Jesus. He's saying, I'm not taking them out of the game. I'm not taking them out of conflict. I'm not taking them out of the suffering that's going to happen. In fact, I'm putting them into the game. Like, like I'm sending them out intentionally into this. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them. I sanctify myself for them that they might be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. What Jesus is saying is that this whole plan of redemption, this whole aspect of salvation and the gospel being carried forward down to our time was intentionally with him leaving and it being accomplished through us. I I just think back to this design within the Garden of Eden and, and God speaks all things into existence. And, and then he creates man. And then he brings things to mankind and says, okay, you come up with the names. Or, or God himself could have been like, okay, here's this little bird with its wings that you know, flap super fast and go forwards and backwards, up and down, all kinds of beautiful colors, and we're going to call it rhubarb pie. Like, he could have done that. He, he could have came up with every single one of the names and, and then to humankind, to man and woman, gone to them and say, A is for apple, B is for banana, C is for cat. Like, let me teach you what I have created. But instead, he goes to man and he goes to woman. He says, I, I want you to participate in what I've done. Uh, this is about relationship. This is about working together. And so therefore, I've created this. But in participation, you name them. And you have the authority and dominion over what I have created. And this is the plan for us to, to work together because you're in my image. Nothing else is. Nothing else in all of creation was made in the image of God or had the breath of God put into it but mankind. And so that intention was, 
all right, we're working together. So now that's broken by original sin. And there's centuries of sacrifice that must take place in order to atone for sin until Jesus comes back to earth, atones for that original sin, restores the relationship between mankind and God through his death on the cross and adoption then as sons and daughters into the kingdom of heaven where then God then says again, now that our relationship's restored, we're doing this together. It's not just me doing it, you standing on the side. Because if that's what it would look like, it would be a beam-me-up Scotty moment. Right? You accept salvation? Zoop! Right? Pearly gates, streets of gold, whatever you want for breakfast, dinner, lunch, and fluffy kittens for everybody. <laughs> right? <laughs> whatever it is. You know, it's so hard to like, imagine what heaven is fully going to entail. But, but again, there's this idea of if God was doing it all on his own, it, it would be a cruel and heartless God that says, you know what, I've got this. Here's my plan. I've got all of this. I just kind of want you to hang out there where it's kind of miserable for a while until it's your time. It would be a cruel and heartless God that would do that. Because what's the point of it? Except the point is, because we're made in his image, because it's his breath that he put into mankind, and not just his breath that he breathed into us to, to live into existence, but the Holy Spirit that, that indwells in us. We have this remarkably unique, intimate, connected relationship with the God of the universe that says, we're doing this together. It's entirely empowered by him. We don't have the power, we don't have the strength, we don't have the ability to make these things happen. But rather, he's saying, I'm working through you. I want to use you to accomplish what I'm doing. This is a, a partnership in order to share within the plan of God, including in the difficulties that he himself willingly went through. You recognize that that Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself has not already done. Facing hatred, facing persecution, facing death, facing ridicule, but also speaking truth and speaking light. And he's saying, I want you to participate. I want you to do the same things. In fact, two weeks ago, we looked at the passage where it said that the works that I've done, you're going to do greater works than these. It's the joy that he has for us to participate with him. And it's the joy that, that we have to participate with him. He doesn't need us. He wants us. And that's where we find absolute joy. We touched on this a little bit last week. But again, he's saying this in John chapter 17. Like, like I'm speaking these things to them in the world, in verse 13, so that they may have my joy completed, that Greek word teleos, fulfilled, filled, absolutely to the brim, that the joy might be completed in them. This goes countercultural to what the concept of joy is in the world. Because for most people, like our default definition in our humanity is, is joy is without conflict. Joy is without suffering. 
That's not God's understanding of what joy is. Joy is in him. It is this sense of, of rightness and permanence and fulfillment and peace that cannot be shaken by circumstance, that cannot be shaken by conflict. And what he's saying is, I'm sending you to the world. I'm not saying I'm pulling you out, but I'm intentionally saying, I'm sending you in where people will hate you. They, if they kill you, they think that they're doing God a favor. They're going to arrest you. There, there's going to be this conflict. And through this conflict and your faithfulness and us working together, then your joy will be complete. In other words, we're not going to find fullness of joy in this life or all of eternity unless we're just walking in abiding with Christ and what he's called us to do. Whether the circumstances are smooth sailing or difficult. Whether we share our faith and people are like, the veil comes off their eyes, they have tears of joy responding to Jesus. Those moments happen and we're ecstatic over them or they spit in our face. We have fullness of joy if we're walking in the purpose for which we've been created to walk. Regardless of circumstance. We looked at that last week, but he is driving it home here by saying this is even happening in the midst of being hated by the world. Because the truth is that we will have the same effect on the world as Jesus if we obey and abide in him, living in the life that he's called us to live. Even though we have that same effect and some of that means conflict, Jesus also gave instruction not to worry. Because if we have an eternal view, trusting in him, there's nothing to worry about. Matthew chapter 10, uh, he says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Even this kind of flies in the face of some of the other aspects of him being a loving shepherd, right? Like, like, I protect my flock. I, I go after them. The, I leave the 99 to go find the one. The concept of a, a shepherd is like, we keep the sheep away from the wolves. But what he's saying, because he's leaving, because he's going to the Father and sending us out on mission into the darkness, he's saying it's as though we're being sent out like sheep uh, among wolves. In other words, there's those out there that would wish to do harm or tear us down. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents, innocents of doves. Beware of them, because they will hand you over to the local courts, flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. Again, it's this whole thing that, that runs counter to our self-preservation ideas. Like, like, we tend not to want to step out into conflict. We tend not to step out into darkness. We, we don't want to be on trial and having to give a defense. What are we going to say in that moment? How are we going to react? What, and what he's saying is don't worry about this because it's not going to be you speaking, but rather the Spirit speaking through you. Again, it's this whole concept of we're doing this together. He's not saying, oh, you're on your own, but rather I'm going to work through you 
so that we accomplish this together. The example of this was the apostles in Act 4, where they were arrested by the Pharisees, the, the same tribunal and judges that sentenced Jesus Christ uh, to death and brought him before um, the Romans. Um, we see this in verse 7. Uh, they had, or the, you know, the tribunal had, Peter and John stand before them. And they began to question him, by what power or what name have you done this? This was a, a healing of a man um, outside of the temple. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, again, Peter's not like, okay, what am I going to say? Like, like, okay, like, let's think through here. And by what power have I done this? Okay, well, you know, um, back in the Old Testament, it said that we would prophesy. And so I can lean on that passage back there. They're, they're going to know that one because they know their Old Testament. So, so we're going to lean on that one. Um, yeah, let's go that way. All right, I'm ready to answer now. But instead, it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what names by means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by this man standing here before you is healthy. They're on trial. The same people that condemned Jesus to death. They're saying, why are you doing this? Oh, the guy that you condemned to death, it's his name. You had him crucified. He's the Messiah. That's how we're doing this. Well, they had that boldness in that moment, not because they were relying upon an understanding of Scripture and being able to, to point it out and being ready in that moment with all this intellectual knowledge, but it was the Holy Spirit leading them to say this very direct, blunt accusation. You crucified him. But he's alive, and this is the power that's at work. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is the leaders recognizing that divine nature at work within them. These are just fishermen. Why are they speaking to us like, whoa, 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 there's something going on. We sense this with this Jesus guy. We see it happening within them. That's their response to this. In this, they then send them away. They're saying, well, don't share it. And they're like, well, we can't do anything about that because all we can do is share it. Uh, and they're just, again, continuing to reject it. But the lesson that we have for us is that even uneducated and untrained fishermen who may or may not have been able to read in first century Israel were able to stand up to the most powerful religious leaders at that time and, and boldly confront them. And yet, how many times in our own life do we worry about what we're going to say? 
and we have all of Scripture, right? Like, like we've probably studied and read more passages than they did. Or we have the opportunity to. Like, like Peter, who wrote some of the New Testament, uh, I doubt ever read Revelation. Like, like we have some things that, that they don't have in this Word of God, and, and yet almost because the glut of information and the ability for us to go to colleges and universities and Bible colleges or Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo or whatever thing you use in order to try and find information, we, we lean on it so much at times that we start to have fear and wonder, what would I say in a given situation? If somebody asks me about my faith, how do I respond? How do I lead somebody to Christ? I, I don't know. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that this is a partnership. It, it's not like he said, okay, I'm leaving. You guys got this. We'll see how good you do. What he's saying is, I'm sending you out into the world. But then he says, realize we're one. The Holy Spirit's in you, working through you, empowering you. We come to circumstances where we don't know what to say. We pray and say, God, what do you want me to say? And it might be odd. It might be just a question. Or it might be very big boldness in what we might think is a very dangerous situation. But in all of it, we've been told There's going to be hardship. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be people that find this abrasive. Why? Not because we're trying to do good things. Not because we're trying to to reveal love to people around us. But because it's the divine nature of God at work within us that's shining out to those around us. We will make an impact on this world as we abide in Christ. The world will hate us because we look different. If we don't look different, if we don't act different, if we don't live different, if we don't think different, how do we seem different to the world? And I think that's a challenge to us to look at different aspects of our life that aren't in submission to Christ and the way that he calls us to follow him. As we interact with people, do they recognize that we've been with Jesus? Do they see that light as we live out our world? And if they do, there will be a response. For some, that response uh, might be joy as the blinders come off and they respond to Jesus Christ. For some, that response might be ignoring. And what they're doing is ignoring the confrontation that's right in front of them. For others, it might be abrasive. And we see the hatred that Jesus foretold would happen. But again, it does not matter what their response is. Their judgment of us is, irreve- is not relevant. First Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. A person should think of us in this way. As servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it's required that managers be found faithful. It's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not even justified by this. It's the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both bring who will both bring to light 
what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. This whole passage is just pointing to the fact that we are different if we are saved. That we're no longer of this world. That we're aliens and strangers. That we're truly sons and daughters adopted by God into all of eternity. That's all that this is pointing to. And that because of the truth of that reality, if we truly live out that identity, we will find fullness Helios of joy, regardless of circumstances. And if we truly live out that identity, it's going to cause reactions in this world. Some will be saved, some will hate us. But the wonderful part is, that's between them and God. All he's asked each one of us is, will you be a part of the work that I'm doing? It's why he hasn't beamed us up, Scotty. Why is, it isn't like, okay, you're saved, come join me. Because he's saying to each one of you, let's do this together. I have stuff that I want to do through you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for this word that we look at and, and we see that the world's going to, to hate us. And, and in that, there might be, you know, earthly concerns of uh, fear or pain or whatever that might happen because of that. But Lord, the, the whole point of this passage, uh, those things are irrelevant. That the whole point of this is that that is a result of a truth that has happened within us as we're transformed into your children. That in your love for us, you have redeemed us from this world, that we're no longer of this world, but rather we're on mission within this world. And that as we're on mission, as we go through that, regardless of the circumstances being smooth sailing or the greatest difficulties, we actually find the fullness of joy within us being completed by your Spirit because we are living out the way that you prescribed and designed us to live. Lord, we want to walk that path. We want to walk that path because in that is the fulfillment of who we are and gives you the greatest glory as we walk according to your plans and your purposes. And whatever the fallout of that is, we trust you with the fruit and we trust you with the hardship. Lord, I pray that you help each one of us to be able to examine our lives, that your spirit would speak to us and, and show us what you have placed within us, the purposes that you had, the, the works before the foundation of the world that you've designed for each one of us to participate in, just because you want to do it with us. I pray that if there's things in the way that distracts us from that, we would cast them out. I pray that if we're on a path that is different than the one that you have for us, that you would bring us to conviction and trust and boldness to walk in that, knowing we're doing it with you, not on our own. Holy Spirit, I pray for revelation for each of us and what that calling is and how we can walk it out in fullness of joy as your body here in Janesville and wherever else we may go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.